Welcome to Esoteric America, a podcast where we tour the strange, mystical, and esoteric pathways hidden beneath the surface of America. Join Mark, Tara, Roman, Chad, and a new local researcher each episode as we dive into our country's diverse regions, states, counties, cities, towns, neighborhoods, parks, etc., leaving no stone unturned as we unravel the cult knots that tie history, culture, religion, all in with fringe elements that you may not have realized were at play in your own backyard. On today's episode, we tour Spring Green, Wisconsin with Steven Snyder. Ladies and gentlemen, Esoteric America episode 12, our guests just got into the call. We've got everything set up and I'm really excited about this one. He's joined me on my show before. He's been on Tinfoil Hat and numerous other well-known podcasts. He is the recluse, Steven Snyder himself. Welcome to Esoteric America, brother. How are you? Doing well, man. And thank you guys so much for having me on. Definitely excited about the presentation here I'm going to give tonight. So hopefully it'll measure up. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited. Normally we invite anybody to join us on the show. And we we are always very grateful when we have a researcher like yourself, someone who's dedicated years to this sort of thing. So yeah, we're in a treat. We're in for a treat tonight. We're going to be revisiting Wisconsin, like I said in the intro, focusing slightly close to Madison, but more specifically on Spring Green and then expanding that outward. So before we get into it, Roman, Chad, Tara, any questions? Steven, you can't see, but Tara's on the call as well. She's on the other side of my They're desk groovy. here. Um, but yeah, any questions, my co-hosts, before we I get do, started? I do have a question. Sure. I'm curious about your background. You have a tower of books behind you, and you know, around here, we love that. We don't find them to be kindling. We find them to be very very beautiful pieces of history. And I'm curious, what? where are you at? Is this your home? You, you live Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my cabin. I'm in West Virginia, man. Ironically, I actually live on land that was originally owned by Lord Halifax, and it was later procured by George Washington's personal physician, who I believe was the one who initiated him into Freemasonry originally. And if I'm mistaken, Washington was also the one who surveyed the land that my cabin is on. So bit of a history with the two. And I actually live like about two blocks from an honest to God ghost town. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You're the perfect guest for this show, Stephen. I mean, really just, yeah. uh, and I, I'd love to have you back on, as I said er- earlier in our email exchange, I, we'd love to have you on to talk about West Virginia as well at some point, but yeah. What is your background? How do you describe yourself? I know you're an author, but do you have like a preferred sort of way of describing yourself, journalist, investigative reporter? How would you yeah. describe yourself? 
I guess I would go with investigative reporter, unlicensed private investigator, something along those lines. I kind of like the private eye thing because I always wanted to be a private eye when I was a kid. So mm. <laughs> I yeah. guess that's partly what I do, though I guess I'm more in the mold of, oh gosh, what is the Clyde Barker character? Harry Damore, more of a private detective in that kind of vein. So I go around the country basically looking at all this kind of weird stuff, go to archives, you know, all kinds of crazy things, trying to suss out the hidden history of these United States. I love it. I love it. <clears throat> Chad, anything you want to add before we get into our presentation here today? Yeah, first off, nice to make your acquaintance, Steve. It's nice and, to make your acquaintance. Uh, just curious, sir. being in West Virginia, how... Thank you. I'm just curious how we find ourselves in Spring Green, Wisconsin. You living in West Virginia, how, the, how our interest brought us there. Well, I, you know, I didn't really set out to become this interested in Wisconsin. It kind of like happened inadvertently. One of my regular listeners, Vincent Trewell, had wanted to do a show with me on the one chick who has like her whole shrine out there in a spot in Wisconsin. And kind of going through it, I realized it was near Devil's Lake, which is where Michael Bertrio had been doing those kind of Lovecraftian rituals. And that opened up like a huge rabbit hole. And subsequently, I just became obsessed with Wisconsin. I mean, I've gone up there like already, I think, three times this year. I'm about to like leave to go back up there in like a week and a half. So <laughs> it's uh, it's a very interesting place, very to put cool. it mildly. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. It's interesting. We've been drawn to Wisconsin here on this show ourselves. We had an episode about Minnesota where we discussed Wisconsin briefly, and then we've discussed a bunch of really interesting stuff with our guest for episode eight, Jeff Finnup, who I think you recently got in touch with, and, and he's going to give a, a tour of Madison because he has the Wisconsin Legends podcast. And what you just heard, folks, is Roman's microphone falling off of the bar that he's sitting at. I don't know. I don't know. Roman has a waitress. This is, might be the only podcast where the co-host has a waitress. But uh, Roman, order order a, a drink on me. I'll Venmo you. Thank you. I will. And really quick, though, I'm, the first thing, first visual I'm getting, right, is, is the WI and the hermetic flip to the MI. You got Michigan and you have Wisconsin right there next to each other. I'm wondering yeah. if there is something that is kind of more esoterically hidden. They're both like hands the too. There. I mean, they're both, they call that little part of Wisconsin the thumb. And then they have obviously like the defined shape of Michigan, the glove, right? The mitten. Oh, yeah. It's a really weird setup because, I mean, obviously, you know, Michigan ended up getting some of that territory like to the far north of like where Wisconsin is on sort of the other side of the bay. But then like bizarrely, Wisconsin owns like a lot of islands out there that you would think would be like under Michigan's uh, jurisdiction, but they're not. And that kind of uh, you know, gets into like a murky area up there around like Beaver Island and Mackinac Island and some of the other weird stuff that's happened up there. Yeah, very strange. Very interesting. Yeah, the the you know the sigils themselves of M and W are just waterways. Yeah, yeah. So it's super interesting. Damn, Roman, you uh, you got like the eagle eye for the symbolism. I'm impressed. Very very good points made on the acronyms of the state. Yeah, that is a definitely a good point. Yeah, good it's very very interesting to see them mirrored like that. But hey, let's get right into it because I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg that scraped the whole Midwest, uh, the glacial, uh, <laughs> terrible joke. But to put it mildly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Roman, let's uh, hit it. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Here we all go. right, all right. <laughs> 
or you got my opening image up then should be popping up and we're here beautiful i see it all right and this is you in front of a carousel here right Yes, that is the famous carousel from House on the Rock, which is in uh, American Gods, which I'm about to get to here presently. So, all right, let's kick it then. Okay, like a lot of people, I first encountered House on the Rock via Neil Gaiman's legendary American Gods, as I just mentioned. I initially read this work in my 20s, well before I'd invested much time in sacred geometry. What was a place of power? Why would a roadside attraction be used to market? And why Wisconsin? It's not just House on the Rock. The entire state is practically a character in American Gods. These are just a few of the questions I've pondered concerning this work over the years. I know a lot more about sacred geometry now and have theories about places of power and how they develop their shrines and temples. And I knew Wisconsin is not just one of the most magical places in the entire United States, but in the freaking world. A lot of people may quibble with that letter statement to which I say, you haven't spent enough time there. All right, slide. So Neil Gaiman found the atmosphere there so conductive to his creative process that he's maintained a residency there since the 1990s. Nor is he the only strange character drawn to the Badger State over the years. Hakeem Bey, P.T. Barnum, various psychics from the Spiritualist Church, seekers from Northern California's New Pagan scene, and a variety of others have found their way there. To say nothing of the incredible residents who have either originated or have settled there. These would include M. Mead Lane, Alex Jordan, Frank Lloyd Wright, the Ringling Brothers, all of which were born there and grew up there at some point. That so many characters would turn up in the same state is kind of magical in and of itself. Slide. But even if Wisconsin is magical, what is it about the area around House in the Rock specifically that is known as Spring Green? The official story of how Alex Jordan started building there and that particular attraction is something out of the film Field of Dreams. His family didn't even own the land when the rock was built or when construction began, rather. It would be several years before they formally acquired the land, by which time the rock was already gathering a lot of attention. Jordan always claimed that he didn't know what compelled him to start building it. And there is much dispute as to how much help he had in the early stages of construction. Some accounts he's held to be the sole builder through the 1950s. While now it's widely acknowledged that friends and family assisted him during this time, the legend of Jordan as the sole builder persists. Slide. It's interesting to note that a lot of the mythos about the rock's early construction traced back to the figure of Sib Boyum, for decades a close confidant of Jordan's. It was Boyum who started the rumor that Jordan built the House of the Rock despite neighbor Frank Lloyd Wright, who in turn had slighted Alex's father. This claim appears to be baseless, however. Much like Boyum's depictions of Jordan as the sole builder, Boyum's ability to spin tall tales was later recognized. In 1976, he was awarded the coveted World Champion Liar Award from the Burlington Liars Club. Okay? Slide. Yes. There really is such a thing as the Burlington Liars Club. In point of fact, it's actually the OG Liars Club, which have since become a kind of staple of Western culture. There is even a band and an American-slash-Canadian game show named after this thing. 
Officially, the Burlington Liars Club was an informal group that started handing out awards for the best whopper in 1929. The club was largely comprised of newspaper men along with police and firefighters. As such, they often fabricated news stories and handed them off to, the, to larger publications. So some of their claims went national in this fashion. Slide. And so Burlington was an apt spot for such a thing. It hosts the community of Vorin, which has a curious place in the history of Mormonism. So following Joseph Smith's demise in 1844, a Burlington resident of Mormon, one James Strang, began claiming that he was the true successor to Joseph Smith. At the time, Strang had no real presence in the church at all, but after the local media began hyping up his claim, he emerged as a national rival to Brigham Young for a time. Eventually, much of the community relocated to Beaver Island in Michigan, but continued to maintain a presence in Burlington. Following Strang's death, Very again emerged as the Strangite headquarters of their particular branch of Mormonism, and it remains as such to this day. I point this out because the use of media to create mythos, especially via outright fiction and fabrications, is a theme that we shall return to time and again throughout this presentation. So do keep this incident in mind. And also keep in mind that there is a certain strang, a certain church of the subgenius that was probably greatly influenced by this whole incident in creating their own mythos. But I digress. So returning to Jordan slide. If you build it, they will come. That was a phrase that was popularized by Field of Dreams during the 1980s. This is one of Kevin Costner's storied baseball movies, though it is more concerned with a roadside attraction that he builds. It's a baseball diamond meant as a homage to the 1919 Chicago White Sox and the scandal surrounding the team. So Costner's character has no idea why he builds this freaking diamond, and even less as to how it becomes magnetic. But people begin showing up from all across the country to partake in Costner's creation. Slide. Much the same thing happened with House of the Rock after 1960 when it was open to the public. With only minimum advertisement, it supposedly did 35k worth of business in its first year alone. And that was just the beginning. Within years of being open to the public, it became a moneymaker to the tune of millions. All from an obscure region in Wisconsin with little to promote it across the nation other than a series of billboards across the Great Lakes region and the Midwest. So that's the official story anyway. As with many things, the truth appears to be far stranger than fiction. Further, none of this explains what exactly it was about this place that made it a power spot. It clearly seems to have affected Jordan and the people around him. Yes, but why? And why do tens of thousands of people still flock there every year? Slide. That's what I'm hoping to explain with this project. No doubt there's something about Wisconsin, but before getting to that, let's look a little closer at Alex Jordan himself. Jordan is a descendant of the Seiler family of Switzerland. One branch of that family, which spelled its last name S-E-Y-L-E-R, the Seiler branch that Jordan hails from is E-I-L-E-R, I believe, relocated to Hamburg, Germany, that's the one with the Y, during the 18th century. 
The patriarch of that particular branch is Abel Seiler. He became a highly successful banker before becoming the founder and director of an equally successful theatrical company. He is generally credited with introducing Shakespeare to German audiences, among other things. So Abel's second son, L.E. Seiler, married into the Berenberg slash Gosler family, the owners of the Berenberg Bank. This institution still exists to this day. It is the oldest merchant bank in the world, and the Berenberg slash Gosler slash Seiler family still owns a good chunk of it. For centuries, the family were a part of the Hansnack merchants who ruled Hamburg as a city-state. They're basically one of the great old banking houses of Europe, in other words. Slide. Abel Seiler's eldest son, Abel Jacob Gerhard Seiler, commonly known as Abel the Younger, did not achieve the same success in business, but his life was arguably even more colorful. He was a scholar and a pharmacist who had a keen interest in metaphysics. He was both a Freemason and a member of the historic Bavarian Order of Illuminati. Yes, the actual Bavarian Illuminati. Slide. Previously, Abel Seiler Sr. had married a woman named Sophia Elizabeth Andrea, who was the mother of Ellie and Abel the Younger, as well as the biological sister of J.G.R. Andrea, the renowned natural scientist. They hailed from the family that had established the Hanover-based Andrea Pharmacy in the mid-17th century and still maintained control of it at the time they intermarried with the Seiler family. So, this raises an interesting possibility, namely that this Andrea family was related to the 16th century theologian Johannes Valentinius Andrea. For those of you unaware, this is the man widely considered to be the author of the original Rosicrucian manifestos. I have not, not been able to confirm this yet, but the name John Andrea appears frequently in Rosicrucian Andrea's family. The first Andrea to head the pharmacy, later bearing the family name, was a John Andrea, who took it over in 1645. Thus, a distant family relation is a distinct possibility in this place. They do seem to be from the same you know, region of Germany, and Andrea Johannes Valentinius Andrea had a big freaking family. He had a lot of brothers. So Alex Jordan might have an Illuminati member and one of the co-founders of Rosicrucianism in his family branch. Slide. The Seiler family brand of the family in Switzerland never quite achieved these heights of influence, but they were a significant regional power in and around the Basel region since the 16th century and onwards. Alex Jordan's great-grandfather, Alexander Seiler III was born into a family who were prominent landowners and business owners in Schwafhazen, less than 100 miles from Basel. A reason for the family's relocation to America in the mid-19th century has never been given, but that may, they may have made the move around 1848. This was the year that witnessed revolutions breaking out all across Europe, is an old moneyed family, the Silers may not have liked their prospects in Switzerland at the time and were looking to avoid certain revolutionary sects and that kind of thing. Mm. By 1849, two generations of Silers had made the move and established themselves in Madison, Wisconsin. 
The family appears to still have a presence there going into the 21st century even. Given Madison's long-standing connections to high weirdness and general strangeness, it's interesting that this particular family would have a presence there from very early in the city's history, especially given what appears to be a deep-rooted interest in the occult among the family. Slide. Alex Jordan himself would certainly display such interests in the design of House on the Rock. Among his influences on the building's design was Gustave Dor, a French artist best known for wood engravings. He provided illustrations for numerous works of classic literature, including Rabalis's Gargantuan and Pentagraal, Dante's Inferno, Milton's Paradise Lost Pose, The Raven and Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The latter was said to have been an especially big inspiration to weird fiction author H.P. Lovecraft, whom you guys will be hearing a lot about as we go forward. Doors' illustrations appear to have had an enormous influence on the development of the horror genre on the whole. There's a clear influence on fantasy as well. A lot of pulp magazines from the golden age of sci-fi, as well as early universal horror pictures, also display heavy influence from Door. To say nothing of the highly esoteric nature of me and the works he illustrated during his own lifetime. Slide. Dora was hardly the only a curious influence on Jordan either. Another was the Venetian architect, artist, and archaeologist Giovanna Battista Penarisia. He is most well known for a series of etchings he did dubbed Imaginary Prisons. These can, I prints, do the, can I do the pronunciations, Stephen? Yes, yes, go for it. I'm probably butchering that That's one. That's right. <laughs> so before it was Schaffhausen, and then now we're, we're Giovanni Battista Piranesi. Piranesi. Okay, okay. Thank you. So he did a series of sketches dubbed Imaginary Prisons. These prints, 16 in total, depict vast subterranean folds with endless stairs and nightmarish machinery. They would have an enormous influence on romanticism and surrealism, to say nothing of gothic horror and fantasy. And his illustrations also were influential when Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum, to say nothing of the artwork of the first two Blue Oyster Cult albums. Slide. Another influence was Renaissance painter and printmaker Albert Durer? Albrecht Durer. Durer, Durer, okay. Durer's work was deeply influenced by alchemist and hermeticist Henrik Cornelius Agrippa. He was also a contemporary Paracelsus and was likely familiar with the Swiss doctor and esotericist as well. Many of his etchings are awash in occult symbolism. Probably the most remarked upon is Melancholia. One is it one or I? I don't know, but I kind of think I, I look like this gentleman. What do you guys think? I Well, I, I love this piece. This is my introduction into learning about the magic square. Oh. What's this piece right here? The melancholia. And I think that's a, that's a large part of when <clears throat> the esoteric lore behind magic square. And in this photo, <laughs> like you said, from top to bottom is absolute encoded symbolism. Yeah, I just wanted to mention too. Each one of these photos of each of these artists that you've shown have those kind of very basic cults. Like this guy's got the one hand in the pocket, and then you know this guy's got the fingers down. He's holding. What do you think that is? 
the other guy is just, I mean, he wrote, he did Melancholia. So, like, all, he doesn't need to have anything, but I'm sure he's, no, he looks like Jesus. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is cool, man. I love this picture. I just had to chime in on that because it is, it is one of my favorite esoteric pieces. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the artwork that, I mean, he was inspired by was just amazing. But yeah, so with Dura, the Saturnine quality of the etchings is often remarked upon, of course. It also contains, like guess we're saying, some kind of mathematical code via what is sometimes referred to as, what is it again, Dura? Yeah, Dura. Dura's solid. This Durr. is a, Okay, I'm going to try this. This is a truncated triangular... Trap in hydron, hydrazine. A trunk, a truncated trapehedron. Is that what you're trying to say? A truncated triangular trapehedron. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. The first in an infinite series of truncated trapehedrons. Ugh. Wow. <laughs> what was this... what, what? What? What do you think his fascination with truncated trapehedrons? How trapehedrons was? I mean, that's a tongue twister right there. Was that? Seems like there's some occult significance in just being able to pronounce that correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the shape has puzzled scholars for centuries for probably a reason. I mean, it might just be because trying to figure out how to pronunciate the freaking thing. I wonder if it's Merkaba. Yeah, it makes mm. you wonder, too. I mean, given, Great you know, because I, I know that Jordan wasn't like the only architect who was really into this stuff as well. I think Durer's stuff was also really influential. Well, yeah, I'm getting to that here in just a second. But it makes you wonder how much some of these, you know, mathematical formulas did influence the construction of some of these buildings and what have you. If that's like one of the reasons why they were such a fan of a guy like Durer. All right. So slide. Okay. And on that note. George Washington Vanderbilt, the builder of the Biltmore Estates in Asheville, North Carolina, which is another massive occult mecca, was also obsessed with Dewar. During his lifetime, the Biltmore Estate had its own Dewar room, which housed the many Dewar prints Vanderbilt owned. To this day, a print of Dewar's The Triumphant Ark of Maximilian is still prominently displayed in the estate. So this is interesting in light of the fact that both the Biltmore and the House of the Rock are premier roadside attractions in the middle of nowhere. Seriously, Asheville, North Carolina, and there's another massive structure built there. I think it's called the Tower or something by like another one of these rich blue so floods. So what? Hold on a second. When I saw this image, I'm like, oh, he's talking about Switzerland still. This is in Asheville, North Carolina. The this Biltmore. is in Asheville, North wow. Carolina, son. Wow. wow. <laughs> when was this built? This was built around the same time as the Chicago World's Fair, which we'll wow. get to here in a second. It was one of the same guys. Oh. That's wow. incredible. Yeah. So, and I mean, I suspect the Biltmore was one of the influences on Jordan's desire to build the house in the rock. So, you know, again... If you travel around this country enough, you start to notice that a lot of these structures were erected in some very arcane spots over the years. It's very interesting. Mm. It's also interesting to note that the Rosicrucian Manifesto author Johannes Valentinius Andrea was a big fan of Durer as well. He even owned several of his etchings. It's likely that Durer influenced what became the Rosicrucian movement far more than has been realized. He also led to an idealized view of melancholia that fueled the Romantic movement, which also imparted all kinds of occult stuff in their literature and so forth. Slide. So much for Dewar. 
Another influence was the early Renaissance painter Hieronymus Bosch. Many of you are probably familiar with Mr. Bosch. He is the creative figure behind the legendary painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, and a lot of other trippy shit. Little was known about his life, though he belonged to a mysterious Catholic order known as the Illustrious Brotherhood of Our Blessed Lady. Given the highly esoteric nature of Bosch's work, this has led to speculation that it might have been related to Catharism, the Brethren of the Free Spirit, or the Brotherhood of St. Anthony, the latter possibly retaining some knowledge of ritualistic psychedelic use. Certainly, Bosch's work would have an enormous influence on psychedelic art of the 1960s and beyond, to put it mildly. Slide. And one final influence I want to note is Ludwig II of Bavaria. Because you just knew he was going to come up. Sometimes known as the Swan King, the Fairy Tale King, or the Mad King, depending upon your point of view. Ludwig is most remembered now for his fanatical patronage of the operas of Richard Wagner and his sprawling otherworldly castles. At times, he combined both of these passions. All right, guys, what is the name of the castle? The New Wittgenstein Castle? I, if the I sleep, had the word the in Sleeping front of Sleeping Beauty me. Castle? Oh, I don't know. New, New Gleckenstein? Is that what you're... Einstein. Hold on a second. Neuschwanstein. Neuschwanstein. Okay, Tara had it. Tara, say it again. That's the Beauty and the Beast castle. Ah, Neuschwanstein castle. Neuschwanstein. Okay, and so this is this is built by Ludwig II. Yes, this was built by Ludwig II of Bavaria. Neuschwanstein castle. He built it in honor of Wagner, and it displays scenes from several of his operas throughout the interior. The exterior is world famous, as I had noted before. It served as the inspiration for the Sleeping Beauty Castle at the heart of Disney World, fittingly. It probably goes without saying, but this structure is a wash with occult architecture. Mm. It's also known as the Grail Castle sometimes because the Grail legend is such a big part of the a lot of the artwork in it and the tapestries and all kinds of other stuff. It's interesting to note that Ludwig's family eventually married into the Jacobite line of succession in the English royal family, or Scottish royal family, rather, and would have dealings with the members of the Thule Society in the aftermath of the First World War. There's a lot of crazy stuff, actually, about all of that, but I uh, didn't want to get too far off the beaten path here. So, with all this in mind, a few observations about Alex Jordan's tastes. He was deeply influenced by mystical Christian artwork and architecture, especially with a Catholic slant. He appears to have been aware of some of the more mystical workings in building places like Washington Castle or the Biltmore State in Asheville, North Carolina, and may even have intended House on the Rock to be a modern American version of these works. He was also deeply influenced by Hermetic, Gothic, and Romantic works that would go on to deeply influence weird fiction, fantasy, horror, comic books, and psychedelica. Many of my favorite things. This is fascinating given some of his contemporaries, as we shall see, as well as his embracement of these styles before the rise of the counterculture of the 1960s. A bad acid trip is one such description often used for House on the Rock, and it's pretty apt. Though Jordan was probably drawing more from Dewar or Bosch than contemporary works or even LSD. 
Given his peculiar family history, this status as the Germanic flavor of many of these influences, one is left to wonder how much of this was a family tradition that played into Jordan's tastes. Given the metaphysical bent of the Siler family, interest in many of these figures may stretch back to when they were contemporaries themselves. What was handed down went into the rock. This is one of the many mysteries around Jordan that will probably never be solved, unfortunately. Slide. There are a few other interesting things about Jordan I want to address before going forward. So Jordan attended St. Norbert's High School, a Catholic boarding school connected to St. Norbert's College in Dupree, Wisconsin, I believe. These schools, along with several others in the Green Bay region, are all run by the Order of St. Norbert. Norbert was a contemporary and a friend of Bernard of Clairview, or is that how it's pronounced? Claire, the founder or one of the co-founders of the Knights Templar. So Norbert's order was founded during the same time as the Knights Templar. Little is known about this group, which was nearly extinct by the 19th century. But then it experienced a significant comeback, largely due to its outreach in Wisconsin. For a time, the order even owned Green Bay's main TV and radio stations. In fact, Wisconsin is actually, as far as I can tell, the main part of the entire world that it has a significant presence in. Anyway, about a decade after Jordan graduated from high school in 1939, he had a couple of legal problems. It involved what is known as a badger game. This is where a typically married man is lured into a sexually compromising situation that is then recorded. In Jordan's case, he used his longtime female companion to seduce the employer of a friend and photograph the act. But the mark, rather than being extorted by Jordan, opted to come clean with his wife and call the police. Jordan's father a preeminent businessman involved in real estate, interceded and ensured his son got off with a minor find, and more importantly, it was kept out of the Madison paper. I should point out, though, that there were persistent allegations that some of the more extravagant, quote-unquote, picnics that Jordan held in House of the Rock in the 50s before it was open to the public, there were long-standing rumors that maybe certain things were also filmed during this time frame as well huh now you you i just want to point out you called the this practice a badger game am i hearing that correctly badger yes yes that was what it was referred to as a badger game when jordan did it and we're looking at wisconsin which is the badger state (laughs) yeah yeah huh okay all right and Saint Nor- the Order of St. Norbert, this is a new one. I've never heard of it. Well, not new, but new to me, for sure. I've never heard of these folks before. Yeah, I, I didn't catch where St. Norbert himself is is from, but he's got that, that almost that Russian Orthodox type of staff. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to be sure, man. And that's all in the kind of the Oshbosh, Bagosh, Green Bay, I think Appleton-like area of Wisconsin, too. So... Yet another mystery for Wisconsin. Ironically, this is the same area where Harry Houdini's family immigrated to when they came over from Europe as well. So you got that too. Right. All right. So three years after Jordan's Badger game blew up in his face, the U.S. entered into World War II. 
But Jordan was rejected from the Army, and he would have been a strapping young lad at this point. He had played football in high school and was quite successful at it and all that good stuff. But supposedly he was rejected by the Army due to a heart condition, though, as I said, he'd been a celebrated high school athlete. So he ends up working for a defense contractor at the Badger Ordnance in Baraboo throughout the war. That's fairly close to Madison, by the way. Slide. So one final point I want to make about Jordan before moving on, and that was his obsession with St. Francis, the founder of the Franciscan Order. An image of St. Francis is present in House in the Rock, and Jordan had apparently considered naming the place after him at one point. I suspect this is due to both the St. and the Order's connections to jesters. Franciscans have been called fools for Christ, while St. Francis was known as God's jester, and he encouraged other preachers to embrace such methods. He was the Vatican's very own holy fool or sacred clown. Given the close ties Wisconsin has to clowns and carnivals, which I'll get to in a second, and they are also prominently displayed in House of the Rock as well, it could be a reason why Jordan took St. Francis to heart. So there are some pretty incredible influences and forces being mustered at this particular spot. But why? What is it about this region? Slide. Well, first, let's briefly consider the so-called psychic highway. This is a concept often applied to the burned-over district in New York State from which spiritualism, Mormonism, and a host of other arcane spiritual practices originated from, at least during that time. Many towns, as well as the city of Buffalo, a major mecca for this kind of stuff, were along the 42nd parallel slide. But it wasn't just New York State that witnessed a host of strange things happening on and along the 42nd. There was already a public awareness that there was something about this parallel well before it was linked to the psychic highway. The famed Lost Generation novelist John Dos Pesos entitled his first book in his legendary USA trilogy, the 42nd parallel to mark the incredible amount of activity unfolding in many of the cities along it slide. When one considers these places and the migrations of arcane spiritual traditions from America's East to West coast, it's clear that the 42nd parallel was absolutely crucial. Boston itself, along with Salem around the 42nd major figures in the Puritan hierarchy, such as John Winthrop studied alchemy while there are persistent allegations that some type of folk magic was actually practiced at Salem at the time of the infamous witch trials. This is also near Quincy, Massachusetts, where Thomas Morton established his infamous neo-pagan Marymount commune with local Native Americans, freed and injured servants, and other outcasts and dissidents in 1626. It didn't last long, but it would capture the imagination of many. And the 42nd Barrow cut right through it. Slide. So from the coast of Massachusetts, many of these Yankees gradually spread out across the nation. They established what we now think of as New England, and when they were finished, they continued to look blessed. First up was New York State. This fueled the Second Great Awakening that swept across the Burnover District. Slide. Once the aptly named Erie Canal was completed in 1825, they began to spread out across what was then the Northwest Territory. This led to the creation of the great industrial cities in the Midwest, such as Detroit and Chicago, and both of these spots were located along the 42nd parallel. Fittingly, they also developed into major hubs of alternative spiritualities, especially among the African-American communities. 
But Chicago especially would play host to a wide variety of bizarre spiritual practices, and more than a few would cross over into neighboring Wisconsin. For our purposes here, it's interesting to note that the famed magician and wandering bishop Michael Bertrio would lead a group up to Devil's Lake, an important Native American spot, to perform Lovecraftian workings to some of the old ones there. Devil's Lake, by the way, is very is basically right next to Baraboo, and all of this is probably about a half an hour from Madison, to put this in perspective, and probably 45 minutes or so from Spring Grove. So this is all like very close to everything else. Slide. Even before then, Chicago served as a kind of gateway for the spread of many of these beliefs to the rest of the country. The 1893 Chicago World's Fair featured a strong presence from the Theosophical Society, which also had an equally strong presence in Chicago at the time. This led to to displays featuring many Buddhist and Hindu practitioners. For many Americans, this was their first exposure to Eastern traditions. Slide. More ominously, Chicago also hosted the White Channel Club by the late 19th century, named after Jack the Ripper's hunting grounds in London and listing the Ripper as the honorary president. The club was originally founded by a group of journalists, but it gradually brought in more high society types. The quote-unquote clubhouse of the group was a wash gory imagery, Supposedly, the purpose of the society was fun and pranks. The joking stopped once the Ripper-like H.L. Holmes began his uh, killing spree around the World's Fair in 1893. Thus began the reign of one of America's earliest known serial killers. This is another thread that we shall encounter time and again throughout this presentation. It's also interesting to note that a figure you'll be hearing a lot about, Frank Lloyd Wright, briefly worked at the fair, and the father of Walt Disney, a major influence on Alex Jordan, also found work there. Slide. So that's one power center right in the midst of the 42nd. Devil's Lake is near the 42nd as well, as is Burlington, Baraboo, Spring Green, and Madison. Such we shouldn't be surprised to see that well before the modern era, the southern part of the state attracted a wide swath of curious characters. So as has already been noted, Wisconsin was arguably the circus capital of the United States by the late 19th century. The Ringling Brothers established, were established in Baraboo, while Bob Bailey's outfit was set up near Lake Geneva, south of Milwaukee. P.T. Barlum eventually found his way out to Wisconsin, where he lent his name to Bailey's act, creating the legendary Barnum and Bailey. So on the eastern side of the state, Barnum and Bailey had their headquarters, and on the western side of the state, the Ringling Brothers had their headquarters. And this was a state of affairs that persisted up to the early 20th century. Now, can and I just, they weren't good. Can I just butt in real quick? One of the big striking <laughs> things about Wisconsin that I learned about from Jeff were the number of big cat, strange animal sightings. And now we're talking about the two biggest circuses in the United States history having their headquarters in this state. I mean, to yeah, me, well, it's... Well, they were both founded in this state, essentially. I mean, yeah. And I mean, and these were just the big ones. There were a ton of like lesser acts that were set up in wow. Baraboo and around the Lake Geneva area. Well, could you um, imagine all the hijinks like, you know, people, enemies, you know, uh, circus enemies, they're going and they're going to go release the lions from 
from their competitors' cages. And the next thing you know, the town's got all these, oh, we saw a big cat. And the cops are like, no way, there's no lions in Wisconsin. Well, there were definitely elephants. I mean, I think they even had to, they, yeah, there's like, I think a graveyard near Lake Geneva or something where they had buried an elephant, if I'm not mistaken, that wow. had like gotten sick. I mean, there were just, there's at least two, if I'm not mistaken, graveyards in the state that were just for like the carnies that have got like a lot of, you know, really bizarre headstones and stuff in it. So it's another interesting thing about the state all the bloody circus history there yeah it's pretty ominous and light of some of the stuff that we'll get to here in a second but yeah so wisconsin big with circuses and okay so barnum and bailey all these other cats they were not alone a fair amount of what some might be described as cults also found their way there. We've already talked about the Order of St. Norbert. There was a strong spiritualist presence throughout the state for what was many years the only spiritualist college in the entire United States operated out of Whitewater, Wisconsin, which is a really freaking weird place as well. An annual spiritual camp has operated in the western side of the state for years and is still active to this day. And then, as I noted before, there was James Strang's breakaway Mormon sect, which tried to establish a kingdom on the islands just outside of Green Bay. Just a couple examples from the 19th century (laughs) slide. Before moving along, it's also interesting to note that when one looks east along the 42nd parallel, some interesting spots appear in Europe as well. The 42nd actually cuts directly through the Pyrenees mountain range that has served as the historic borders between Spain and France. The French side was a major hub of Cathar activity for decades, while Rene Le Chateau and other major New Age hubs in France reside near the border there, right next to the 42nd. The Spanish side is even more weird. It features the Spanish city of Giriana. Guiana, where much of the modern-day Kabbalah, Kabbalah was devised. There's also the mystical regions of Catalonia and Galicia. The latter is also the location for one of the more popular versions of the Book of St. Syrian, I believe, the famed Grimoire. And finally, it's knee-deep in Basque country. The Basque have long been linked to a mystical heritage as well. So there's a strange pool along the 42nd that seems to attract a lot of curious belief systems and certainly it seems to be reflected by many of the places of power that have emerged along this particular parallel slide so native americans seem to have realized this long ago i've read accounts declaring that more effigy mounds have been found in southern wisconsin than anywhere else in the country while i've never been able to reliably confirm this there's no question that the state is a wash with native american mounds and the curious mythos surrounding them they are said to have been built by the culture of the eastern woodlands which predated the more well-known Indian hopo cultures of the ohio valley region the cosmology is strikingly similar however we exist in middle world or middle earth fittingly There's also the upper world or the above world, the unblemished skies, the dominion of the celebrated Thunderbirds. It was associated with creative forces and the spirits of the deceased ancestors. And beneath everything was the watery underworld said to be ruled over by the great serpent. Curiously, there was also the other world. This was usually depicted as a twin or evil earth. 
This is also quite interesting in light of various esoteric traditions that have emerged in modern America. Again, this kind of plays into Kenneth Grant's cosmology specifically, yeah, that whole kind of concept of the evil twin earth as well, which again is interesting that Bertrand would be performing the Lovecraftian rituals at Devil's Lake. But I digress. So reaching this realm of the evil earth is often achieved through a stellar journey of the dead that ends in the Milky Way. Many woodland tribes believe that this is where the human soul resides after death. They were often confronted by a winged serpent or a great dog before being allowed into the Milky Way's great rift. However, the other world is often seen as being distinct from the underworld, which is typically viewed as a vast ocean, i.e. like the abyss. This is in keeping again with many esoteric traditions involving theurgy that date back to antiquity and Mesopotamia and all those other regions. In both traditions, a journey through the stars often ends in the Milky Way for the human soul. So again, it's very fascinating slide. The founding fathers themselves were among the first to become obsessed with the principal traces of these cultures, namely their mounds. Between the French-Indian Wars and the American Revolution, George Washington self-dedicated a considerable amount of time to exploring the mounds of the Ohio Valley. While he never devoted quite as much time to the subject as his arch-rival, Thomas Jefferson also had an interest in such things. In the aftermath of the American Revolution, many of the lands once inhabited by the mound-building cultures, as well as the remaining mounds themselves, were placed within the Northwest Territory. This encompassed much of the modern-day Ohio Valley region and the area around the Great Lakes. So again, that whole MIWI thing, well, it was all part of the same territory along with the Ohio Valley and all those mountains there. And while the Northwestern Territory was open to all Americans in the newly forged nation, colonization was mostly driven by a most mysterious order, slide. It was known as the Society of Cincinnati. It was, in effect, a hereditary chivalric order established by officers from Washington's Continental Army. George Washington himself was the longtime president, while numerous other celebrated American dynasties maintained membership. It was this group that was the driving force behind the colonization of the Northwest Territory. It was also this group that made the first formal attempt to study and excavate the mountains in this particular region. They established a base in Marietta, Ohio, which at the time featured one of the most elaborate Hopewell complexes still intact. Slide. And they studied these structures intently, which is interesting in light of the fact that much of the supposed sacred architecture of Washington, D.C. came from Jefferson, George Washington, and Pierre Lefante. The latter was also a member of the Society of Cincinnati, which had been studying the indigenous structures long before plans for the nation's capital were drawn up. Given the stellar alignment of both the nation's capital and many of the Hopo and Adena structures the society members were exploring in the Ohio Valley, in my opinion, speculation is warranted of an indigenous influence on DC's outline, outlay. Slide. And to think, it was... If the founders were this enamored with what they found in the Ohio Valley, what would they make of the vast tracts of mounds spread across southern Wisconsin? 
Curiously, there's not much in the records concerning what the first settlers thought about these in southern Wisconsin. But we do know that the first colonists, unlike those that came during the later parts of the 19th century, were almost entirely of Yankee New England stock. Major hubs across southern Wisconsin, such as Whitewater, Janesville, and many of the other suburbs around Milwaukee, were almost all founded by said Yankees initially. And these Yankees hailed from the same New England regions that produced the celebrated families behind the Society of Cincinnati. Sometimes, when one is exploring the early history of this nation, you can't help but feel like a lot has been left out deliberately, and this is certainly one such case. House in the Rock resides in Sauk City, Wisconsin. Sauk County, Wisconsin, excuse me. It is acknowledged that this was a New England settlement from the beginning and that the colonists flooded in here from New England and upstate New York in the aftermath of the American Revolution. They came after the Northwest Territory was established and they continued to migrate until the 1830s. As such, much of Sauk County was culturally closer to New England for decades than other parts of Wisconsin. So this migration happened during the Second Great Awakening, ensuring a host of arcane spiritual practices also made their way out to Wisconsin during this time. The state, as I kind of noted before, might have the largest presence of spiritualists outside of New York State for this reason. And of course, there were the mounds. Sauk County houses the infamous Devil's Lake, another major hub Native Americans uh, had set up there. And again, a lot of New England transplants were also drawn to. Thus, a lot of strange beliefs were being thrown into the blunder. And on top of that, there was the distinctly New England Yankee faith gaining a stronghold throughout the Midwest at the time. Unitarianism. Originating with the Puritans and transplanted to Wisconsin from New York's burned-over district, it blazed the same trails pioneered by the Cincinnati and their own universalist vision for the American nation. This was the climate in which the next wave of immigrants found upon arrival in Wisconsin, and the southern part especially. So we hear a lot about the Germans, not all of them, though. The immigrants were German or from New England Yankee stock. At least one prominent family that ended up in Sauk County, and specifically Spring Green, hailed from Wells. That was the family of Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, the uncle of Frank Lloyd Wright. Wright's family had deep ties to this whole region. His father, William Wright, was a directly descendant from New England Yankees, though Wright always identified more closely with the Welsh Lloyd Jones side of his family. Wright's first work as an architect was designing the Unity Chapel in Wyoming, Wisconsin, for his uncle. Shortly thereafter, his aunts, the educators Jane and Ellen C. Lloyd Jones, commissioned him to build the Hillside Home School again in Wyoming. Later, he built the famed Romeo and Juliet windmill for them in the same area. Further, the Lloyd-Jones family plot is located right next to Spring Green. Frank Lloyd Wright spent part of his childhood around Spring Green, but it was only after he relocated there during the early 20th century that the town was forever changed. Thus began the town's journey from Sleepy Village to Hub of International Intrigue. The click around Wright cast a strange and long-standing shadow over the community. One such figure was Wright's protege, William Wesley Peters. 
After studying with Wright and Frank Green, he became the chairman of the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation after the architect's death in 1959. He still held the same post and residency when he married Slavonstia Yavadvia, the daughter of Joseph Stalin. Yes, the longtime dictator of the Soviet Union. His daughter married a Wright protege and lived in Spring Green, Wisconsin for many years. One can only imagine yeah, the intrigues that this spurred. All right, so Wright's family had already spoiled the small town serenity of Spring Green by the time by this point. His cousin, Richard Lloyd Jones, was a prominent newspaper man by the early 20th century. Around 1911, he procured the Wisconsin State Journal. Frank Lloyd Wright's granddaughter, Ann Baxter, was an Oscar-winning actress and would also forge ties with the community. Like many members of the family, she is interned at the family crypt in Spring Green as well, known as the Lloyd Jones Cemetery. This is yet another curious aspect of Spring Green. Jones Wright family plot is also located there. And yes, it is right next to the Unity Chapel, Wright's first major project. In point of fact, the Wright family seems to have an uncanny ability to discern places of power. Wright himself would later set up shop in Scottsdale, Arizona. This was subsequently become a New Age Mecca in its own right, and it's right next to Phoenix, a city with a long-standing and peculiar Masonic tradition. And certainly as witnessed, no shortage of high weirdness over the years, as the Phoenix Lights are a testimony to. Wright also spent a considerable amount of time in Chicago, another region with a rich, cold tradition, and thought to be a major power center as well, as I noted earlier. Elsewhere, many of Wright's kids would set up shop in Southern California around the Los Angeles area. Their work there would have a profound influence in shaping that region. As Hollywood is located there, this gave the Wright family style a truly international reach. And of course, this is another major power center. Possibly most curious of all, however, is granddaughter Elizabeth Wright Ingram's longstanding ties to Colorado Springs. This is another major Native American site. Garden of the Gods is nearby, as are several other remarkable locations. It was also here the NORAD was later established, cementing the region along with nearby Denver as a major modern power center. So the Jones-Wright family certainly seems to have a nose for this type of thing. But Spring Green isn't Chicago, Phoenix, LA, Colorado Springs, or any such major metropolis. Was there something else at play? Slide. Frank Lloyd Wright is typically viewed as a secular materialist. He was one of the models for the main character in On Rand's The Fountainhead, after all. But there are telltale signs that he held some rather arcane views. Wright was, in theory, a modernist through and through, and his disdain for classical architecture is well known. Asian styles are a different story. In particular, Wright openly cited Japanese workings as an influence throughout his life. But did the influence go deeper than design? There has been an ongoing debate for years now as to the extent Wright might have been influenced by Taoism and concepts taken from it, such as feng shui. Certainly anyone who set foot in a Wright house is aware of the sense of space and a certain flow that goes along with the design. So was Wright attempting to direct energies? 
it's stretched, but perhaps not as much as it may initially seem. Another interesting aspect of Wright is that, like his fellow modernist Buckminster Fuller, Wright was an early member of the Fortean Society. So the literary nature of this society is often played up. Other early members included reputable and level-headed folks like H.L. Mencken, Alexander Wolcott, and Dorothy Parker. But they still rubbed elbows with people like Vincent Gaddis, the pioneer of the Bermuda Triangle concept, and future cryptozoologist extraordinaire Ivan Sanderson. At a minimum, then, it may be said that Wright had an interest in the unusual. Then there was Wright's third and final wife, Agvana Lloyd Wright. She was born in 1898 in Montegero, which was then part of the Russian Empire. She relocated to Russia proper at the age of nine and was married there in 1917, right around the time of the revolution. Shortly thereafter, she became a devotee of G.I. Gurdjieff and would remain such for the rest of her life. That Gurdjieff's ideology was even incorporated into the fellowship established by herself and Frank Lloyd Light, which we'll get to in a second. It's curious that this is rarely addressed, but the fact is, Ogliana Lloyd Wright was one of Gurdjieff's most devoted and vigorous acolytes. She remained with him in Russia after the revolution and then followed him to Turkey. It was there that Gurdjieff encountered another major devotee, John G. Bennett, who ironically actually established the Claymont Society in Charlestown, West Virginia, which is actually very near where I live. At the time, Bennett was then the head of British intelligence in Istanbul, and this is significant too. This is right around 1920, around the time that the coup went in there to depose the Sultan and basically establish the modern Turkish government. Um, Okay, so Oglivano would continue to follow Gurdjieff until 1924, when he dispatched her to the U.S. after a near-fatal car accident that he was in. By this time, Gurdjieff was in need of funding, and the U.S. was plush with cash. Ogdivana helps set up a successful Chicago-based Gurdjieff group, but surely nothing compared to her landing right and incorporating elements of the quote-unquote fourth way into their respective fellowship. But that all came later. Slide. Even more revealing is the name of Wright's residency in Spring Green, Taliesin. The legendary figure of Taliesin was a nearly shamanistic-like figure, held in some accounts to be a bard in King Arthur's court. Taliesin's long-standing association with bards in Welsh and broader Celtic mythology is most telling. Pre-Roman Celtic, in pre-Roman Celtic society, the bards likely comprised one portion of the aristocracy, along with the warrior class and the celebrated Druids. The Druids were, of course, the priest class, but all three held some religious functions. The Druids were more or less totally wiped out by the Romans, along with the the most detailed accounts of the Celtic faith. Most of the warrior classes joined them as well. The bards, however, appeared to have fared a bit better and may have been allowed to intermarry with the more Roman-centric aristocracy that was then being installed. It seems most likely that whatever traces the old Celtic mythology that have come down to us held from these bards and their descendants. And of course, referring to the traditions of the early medieval poetry from the British Isles and then later the child ballads and things of that nature. 
It's also kind of interesting to note that bards and digesters seem to have been fairly interchangeable in the early Celtic courts. And certainly if you've seen some of the classic, you know, bard costumes, they are rather clown-esque, to put it mildly. So it's another interesting point that, that they might have held from kind of the same lineage. But anyway, the Roman yoke was never as heavy in Wales as in the rest of England. As such, Taliesin can be seen as a personification of a pure tradition. Certainly, this is how he would have been viewed by members of the Welsh Lloyd-Jones family, who had only immigrated to the U.S. in 1844 and revered on Welsh mythology. Frank Lloyd Wright held his mother and the entire Lloyd-Jones family in high regard and was brought up with these same traditions. Point of fact, Taliesin was not an anomaly. All of his family named their residences after Welsh figures. But how far would the family's interest in Celtic ancestry and possibly fate go? Can't say for certain, though, Wright incorporated a lot of Celtic imagery into you know, his logo. It was basically a Celtic cross. He would come up with these modernistic takes on things like Celtic spirits, like sprites and the tree of life. It's all really quite fascinating. So anyway, slide. It's an interesting question as far as how far you would take this faith in light of events that unfolded at Wright's residence of Taliesin in 1914. In 1903, the married Wright began an affair with the equally married Mama Borwick Cheney. In 1909, they formally left their spouses and relocated to Europe. Initially, they set up shop in the city of Florence for its esoteric tradition. During this time, Cheney's husband granted her a divorce, but Wright's wife refused to budge. In 1910, Wright grudgingly returned to the United States. He then persuaded his mother to buy the land near Spring Green and began constructing Taliesin upon it. Wright began construction of the house in 1911. It was done in the prairie style Wright was famous for, but also meant to emulate Wisconsin's thriftless region. While it captures the region's flatness and limestone surroundings, there have, may have been more about the Drifts region it sought to channel. Where is this, this located, This these two buildings here? Pardon me? Where are these two buildings located, That or this building that we're looking at here? Where is this located? This is Taliesin, yeah. This is in Spring Green. This is actually okay. about five miles up the road from House on the Rock. Okay. And this one is pronounced Taliesin. Taliesin. I, I believe so. I could be butchering it again, Taliesin. but I think That's it's Taliesin. Right. Yeah, Taliesin. Uh, so this is like, well, this was Wright's studio, okay? This was his major studio for many years until he built the Taliesin West in Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay, so, and this is also where he trained a lot of his protégés as well. So this area, which also, this is the Driftless region, getting back to that. This area, which includes parts of Iowa and Illinois, is well known for its high weirdness. Now, less than three Wisconsin towns in this area claim to be the UFO capital, not just of Wisconsin wow. or the United States, but the entire world. Oh, wow. <laughs> Slide. Okay, so Wright and Cheney moved into the residency during the winter of 1911 along with her two children from a prior marriage. She translated the works of Swedish feminist Ellen Kay while Wright collected Japanese art, installed a flower garden, and designed some of his most celebrated projects. 
One of these was the Midway Gardens in Chicago, which was also completed in 1914. And that's, fortunately, I didn't, I just learned about this and didn't include a slide of it in here. But if you look it up online, it looks like almost a modern day hanging garden of Babylon during in a modernistic fashion. And it was also the project for which Wright had his famous sprite statues constructed for sprites are typically depicted as elemental beings of the air and the water this is going to be very important for what i'm about to get to so keep this in mind that wright is building this elaborate structure in chicago with these elemental step these statues of these elemental beings at the same time that this is unfolding okay so as far as taliesin and mama cheney goes it was supposedly bliss until 1914 great slide julian carlton is a true enigma he's often described as an afro-caribbean of west indian descent and claimed to have hailed from barbados but he most likely was probably from alabama but like much about him you know it's all in doubt Wright first encountered him in Chicago and hired him to work as a chef and servant at Taliesin in 1914. He was 31 years old at the time. He came there with his wife, Gertrude. Supposedly, Carlton's behavior had grown increasingly paranoid throughout the year, though initially he was described as, quote, a genial presence. It was only after he started staying up late at night with a butcher's knife that concern was raised. So the story goes. Wright started looking for another cook, and Carlton was given his notice on August 15th, 1914. He opted to not go quietly into the night. While Wright was away in Chicago, working on the Midlands Garden with his son Lloyd Wright in tow, Cheney remained at Taliesin with her kids and the staff. Sometime around noon on the 15th, Carlton murdered her and her children with a hatchet then set the bodies on fire. Slide. The staff was apparently dining in Taliesin's residential section and oblivious to a woman and her children being murdered with hatchets. In fairness, some accounts hold that the events I'm about to describe occurred prior to Carlton's hatchet work on Mama Cheney. How the cook managed to pick off these two groups without the other being aware of the violence is one of the great mysteries of this tragedy, however. Regardless, Carlton set up the living quarters on fire while the staff were having lunch. He then waited outside, and as the diners emerged, he assaulted them with the hatchet one by one. Five staff members plus the kid of one of the workmen had been at the lunch table. Only two survived, apparently because Carlton left them for dead. Carlton then retreated into a fireproof furnace beneath the residency and swallowed a bottle of hydrochloric acid in an apparent suicide attempt. It didn't work, and he was later found by the sheriff in a rather distraught state. Meanwhile, two of the workers had recovered and had managed to get help. The fire was put out before it got to Wright's studio, conveniently, thus preserving his work. Gertrude, Carlton's wife, was found in the nearby field dressed in travel clothes. She was unaware of her husband's activities and was expecting them to catch a train to Chicago later that day. When all was said and done, seven people were dead, 
three of them children. Besides Cheney's kids, the 13-year-old son of survivor William Weston also died in the attack. Bizarrely, this seems to be the same Weston family that produced the philosopher Anthony Weston, who's based out of, I believe, the University of Wisconsin at Madison still. Anthony also hails from Spring Green and has cited Wright as an enormous influence in his ideology, and it is a curious stew, to put it mildly. Needless to say, a lot about this story doesn't add up. And of course, there has been little to no effort to dig deeper into these horrendous murders, despite this being one of the two worst mass killings in the entire history of Wisconsin. This may be due to one of the truly disturbing elements of these killings, and that is the similarities that they bear to certain Celtic traditions. Slide. The ancient Celts worshipped a trinity of gods, Terianus, Isus, and Teutatus. All three gods demanded human sacrifice at times and in specific ways. Teutatus was fond of drowning and preferred his victims in sacred pools and wells. Terianus was all about the flame. Specifically, he liked his victims burned alive in giant wicker cages. And then there was Isus liked his sacrifices to either be hanged from sacred trees or stabbed to death. What's more, there are only two known images of Isus, and they both depict him with an axe. In general, it seems the Celtic ritual axes were often dedicated to this specific god. Isus would no doubt have been pleased with how the victims of Taliesin turned out. And then there's the fire. Terianus was really big on wicker being combined with the burning of his victims. Given Wright's preference for natural furnishings, I suspect some wicker furniture was somewhere in Taliesin at the time. As for Tatatus, he was no doubt a bit disappointed by the lack of drowning. But Wright had dammed a creek on the property, creating an artificial lake that he transformed into a Japanese-style water garden. This is especially interesting in light of certain Japanese traditions involving water and the spirits of the dead. If you've ever seen the Ringu films, you're aware of the notion that bodies of water can be used to trap the energies of the souls of the dead. Again, I will remind you that this is the same time Wright was having a bunch of statues built to water elementals in Chicago. Slide. So while there was no drowning proper, was a water garden that may have been mystically designed. Whether this would have constituted an approach respectable to Tatus is a matter of debate, but it seems to be in keeping with certain Japanese traditions. As such, arguably all three aspects of Celtic sacrifice were present in these murders. Slide. Should be noted as well, okay, well, yeah, I've already got a bit of the whole project here with the Midlands Garden, so I did get a slide of it in there again. All right, fantastic. Look at this stuff, okay? So, this project featured pools among its many spectacles. Also witness Wright making extensive use in Celtic mythology and the design. Got these sprites, which are fairies. Uh, so anyway, in the aftermath of the attacks, the Celtic theme continued. The survivors and the bodies were taken to the House of Wright's sister, dubbed Tanya Darrow probably betraying that terribly. Cheney was later buried near at nearby Unity Chapel in the Lloyd Jones family plot. So 
was Taliesin the scene of a ritual murder? It certainly seems to have characteristics of that, especially given the backdrop. But perhaps a more apt question is whether Carlton was aware of the ritual drama he was playing out or whether he was possessed by some unknown force or a combination of both. And how much of this was Wright aware of? Slide. When Wright arrived at Taliesin in 1911, it was supposed to mark a new beginning. Instead, it was the end of an era. Wright adopted the prairie style around 1900 and began his affair with Cheney in 1903. The 1914 murders ended both Wright's style, that particular phase of styles that he was using, and his style afterwards was much changed. The event was certainly transformative, to put it mildly. Did Wright engage in some type of ritual to bring about this process? And was he subjected to unconscious forces that both he and the surrounding terrain had summoned, perhaps unwittingly? In this context, it's interesting to note that this is not the only grisly murder linked to a house that was built by a member of the Wright family. Lloyd Wright, Frank's eldest son, became a celebrated architect in his own right. And Lloyd was the one with Frank in Chicago at the times of the murder around the Midway Gardens. Okay. And Lloyd may have even gone further into mysticism than his father. The largest collection of his work was built for the Institutes of Mental Physics next to the story town of Joshua Tree, California. The Institute of Mental Physics was established, as we're going to love this, by an Englishman named Edwin Dingle, an early Eastern-looking guru who arrived in Oakland, California with, quote, spiritual development techniques featuring panorama, vegetarian diet, and ESP. Supposedly, he learned these techniques from Tibetan mystics, but this has been much debated, to put it mildly. In addition to the Institute, Lloyd Wright also designed L.A.'s Swedenborgian Memorial Chapel, rechristened Wayfarer's Chapel, and he also played a crucial role along with his father in popularizing the Mayan-style architecture in California. If you've ever seen the movie Blade Runner, you've seen this kind of architecture before. This was something that the Wrights helped popularize again. And that brings us to our second murder slide. Another of Lloyd Wright's most celebrated works is the John Soden House in L.A., sometimes known as the Franklin House, or the Jaws House. It's said to resemble either a Mayan temple or the gaping jaws of a great white. From 1945 till 1950, the home was owned by Dr. George Hodel. In 2003, Stephen Hodel, the doctor's own son and a retired L.A. police detective, alleged that his father was the murderer of Elizabeth Short, more popularly known as the Black Delilah. What's more, he alleged that Short's brutal murder and dismemberment occurred at the John Soden house. And if you've ever seen this corpse, there's strong indications that it was a highly ritualistic process. Whether or not Hodel was the actual murderer is well beyond the scope of our current discussion to address. Let's just say for the time being that his son's theory has merit. The presence of the Lloyd Wright House, specifically the kind of architecture depicted in it, 
raises some really disturbing possibilities. The ancient Mayans, much like the ancient Celts, but not quite to the extent as the Aztecs, were also known to practice human sacrifice. If Elizabeth Short was in fact murdered in the John Soden house, few places could have been more fitting than one depicted to look like a Mayan temple. While this may seem a reach, it's worth noting that Hadell appears to have had an interest in Celtic mythology as well. He long used the Celtic solar cross as the emblem for various business ventures that he was involved with. Steve Adele, George's son, insists that his father also had an interest in Ogham's script via artist Brian O'Doherty, who frequently used it in his work. Ogham was an ancient Celtic script, somewhat like Norse runes, though carved into trees and wood and so forth rather than stone. O'Doherty was a surrealist who frequently employed it in his work, which Hodel was a great fan of, both O'Doherty and surrealism, that is to say. Frank Lloyd Wright, as I noted before, used the solar cross as his logo for a time. It was one of several ancient Celtic symbols Wright reimagined in modern form. So it's unknown if Frank Lloyd Wright knew George Riddell directly. But Lloyd Wright certainly did. Not only did they travel in the same social circles in L.A., but Hodel even hired Wright to renovate the Soden House in 1946. This would have been a few months before the murder of Elizabeth Shorts. Did the Lloyd Jones family bring over some kind of family cult from the old country? Or did they unwittingly tap into forces beyond comprehension? Some combination of both? And how does that play in the House on the Rock and Spring Green? Well, at a minimum, we can begin to discern why this is a place of power. Taliesin survived the 1914 murders and the fires and was rebuilt by Wright. The residential wing of the house burned down again in 1925 and again Wright rebuilt it. In 1932, he and Ogleviana launched the Taliesin Fellowship modeled upon Gurdjieff's Institute. Thus a wave of Frank Wright disciples and acolytes were trained and unleashed upon the world. In this fashion, Tiny Spring Green ensured Wright would remain the most celebrated American architect of the 20th century. How much of this was due to the blood of Janie and her children will never be known. But if there's one thing numerous traditions agree upon, few things produce more striking results than the sacrificial blood of human beings, especially children slide. And it can also produce hunger, an insatiable hunger for gods and ghosts alike. These things need to be placated. And sometimes things like shrines can do just the trick. So comes House on the Rock and its tens of thousands of tourists. And then comes Neil Gaiman. Then comes American Gods, which further continues the revival of the old gods. The ones among the pantheons of ancient Egypt, as well as their Celtic and Mayan counterparts. The Kevin Costner character from Field of Dreams built a shrine to the most American of pastimes, baseball. In many ways, this film is a glossy account of the actual dynamics of play in Spring Green. If you build it, they will come indeed. 
But who are they? They're the tourists, sure. And Field of Dream acknowledges that things from the other side also come with them. But often, they are far less benevolent than spirits of a scandalized baseball team. And in some cases, they may be very old entities with very peculiar appetites. Slide. And that makes the final spot up for consideration in all this all the more curious. Circle Sanctuary was established in 1974 by Selena Fox and Jim Allen in Madison, Wisconsin. From such meager beginnings, Circle would arguably grow into the most important neo-pagan organization in these United States by centuries end. On the one hand, it was established as the first neo it was one of the first neo-pagan groups to embrace networking during the late 1970s. The Circle Network had established in 1977, along with the corresponding newsletter, were instrumental in linking pagan communities across the United States in the pre-internet days. Along with the Church of All Worlds Green Egg newsletter, these constituted the principal means by which neo-pagan communities and individuals, obviously outside of major cities like New York City and San Francisco, obviously, were able to communicate with one another for many years. The following year, in 1978, the Circle Incorporated as a church, being one of the first neo-pagan groups to adopt such a status. So this enabled Fox and company to achieve the legal status of ordained ministers, which would prove useful for some of the group's later efforts. It also laid the foundation for neo-pagan groups to establish themselves as formal legal entities. Law would be an ongoing interest to the group as well. In 1985, the group founded the Lady Liberty League. This has grown into one of the principal legal defense funds for neo-pagans and New Age practitioners in the country. Among its most noteworthy accomplishments were introducing pagan chaplains into the U.S. military. Slide. However, the group's most enduring contribution may be its introduction of pagan festivals during the 1980s and the corresponding music scene that emerged around them. The festivals originated in the late 1970s. First was organized by the Midwest Pagan Council, a group based out of the Chicago area. Other early festivals were also held in California, but none of them brought the vision to the table that Circle Sanctuary did when they launched the Pagan Spirit Gathering in 1980. Held during the summer solstice every year, Pagan Spirit Gathering grew into the largest pagan festival in the country during the 1980s, with nearly a thousand participants attending by decades end. This was all again around spring green. It dramatically changed the nature of neo-paganism during this time. Early festivals typically featured maybe 50 to 100 people and were largely based around rituals. Slide. As pagan spirit gathering grew, music moved to the forefront. A variety of chants and songs that emerged helped forge a national pagan culture during the 1980s. And naturally, a good chunk of this music was inspired by the Celtic bardic tradition. One of the earliest individuals to revive said tradition was Gwendolyn Pinderworm, who for years worked closely with both the Society of Grenada Anachronisms and the Church of All World. During the late 1970s, he had purchased the Greenfield Ranch and turned it into a commune for neo-pagans. He also gave it a Welsh name for Underworld that I am not going to attempt to pronounce at this moment. 
His friend Allison Harlow acquired another 220-acre parcel next to his that she dubbed Coheden Birth, Welsh for Speckled Forest. In 1977, Oberon and Morning Glory Zell, the heads of the Church of All World, moved into Coheden Birth. The Church of the All World later acquired stewardship of Greenfield Ranch after Penderwin's death in 1982. Penderwin performed at the first Pagan Spirit Gathering in Wisconsin. He had only released his first album in 1976 and had only made a handful of public appearances, mainly at small gatherings up to that point. Pagan Spirit Gathering helped popularize Penderwin and the revival of Celtic bartery that he was attempting. Even after more world music elements were incorporated throughout the 1980s, Pagan music still remained largely rooted in a Celtic worldview, and it was popularized throughout the community thanks to these festivals, along with the Green Aid and Circle Network newsletters. Given the distinctly Celtic flavor the Bright family had already lent to this region, it's especially interesting that one of the principal engines, the revival of the Celtic bardic tradition, would later be based less than 20 miles from Taliesin. Say nothing of the broader role circle sanctuaries played in reviving druidry among neo-pagans on the whole slide. Besides the pagan spirit gathering, Circle Sanctuary also helped organize the Starwood Festival with the Cleveland, Ohio-based Chameleon Club. Later, this group renamed itself the Association for Consciousness Exploration. Besides Circle Sanctuary, it also maintained close links with the Church of All World, the Zales attended over 20 Starwood festivals, but it also had close ties to various Discordian groups and their offshoots, most notably Church of the Subgenius, because of course they were going to turn up here sooner or later. I've interviewed the founder. Have you seen that interview, Stephen, in the, my backlog? I know I have not. I knew Miguel had interviewed him as well, yeah. though. So. Yeah, he talked about this festival in our interview. He was really the most exciting and strangest guest I've ever had on a, on a show. I wasn't expecting him to be so exciting, but his energy for the, his age was tremendous. You could tell he's done a lot of radio broadcasting, but he was a very interesting character. I recommend anybody watching this go back and, and listen to that if you haven't already. But yeah, this is fascinating. This this is a big part of, you know, the 60s, 70s culture, you know, as you saw it sort of get deflated by the whole Manson thing, it sort of continued in these smaller pagan festivals that were, he said that a lot of them were in Ohio, which I found interesting given the, the mounds there, but I imagine Wisconsin would be no different. Yeah, well, there's also, it's kind of funny, too, because there's also the weird Wisconsin-Ohio connection with the OG Strang, James Strang of the Breakaway Mormon sect, because basically Strang's followers were more or less a bunch of pirates and thieves, to be pretty blunt about it. Specifically, they specialized in horse thievery. So what they would do is they would steal horses in Ohio and then they would transport them up to Wisconsin and they would store them on this island, this beaver island, until they could find buyers for them. So, yeah, wow. that's one of this, like, you know, part of this, just the weird synchronicities of all of this. Yeah. Like, you have a strang, you've got the connection to Wisconsin and Ohio and 
based around something as strange as horse thieves operating off of a freaking island. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, man. You really can't. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, for sure. Wow. All right. So in the grand scheme of things, Circle Sanctuary, along with the Church of All World, was instrumental, absolutely instrumental in the rise of neo-paganism throughout the United States in the 1980s. Its use of networking paralleled efforts undertaken by the more financially well-endowed New Age movement to spread their own views during the same time frame. The results have been profound. Neo-paganism is now one of the fastest growing religions in the United States, and the world for that matter, and Circle Sanctuary, through its combination of networking, mass festivals, and legal aid, was instrumental in this state of affairs. And much like House of the Rock, it managed a major influence on the nation as a whole, like, and also like Taliesin for that matter. So this further reinforces Spring Green and surrounding areas as a major place of power slide but there's also a dark side lurking behind these developments as well further paralleling taliesin as has been well known for some time the milieu around church of all world and the society for creative anachronisms has drawn some unsavory characters over the years at the forefront were walter breen and marion zimmer bradley breen was an arch pedophile who was first outed during the 1950s it later came out, however, that both he and his wife, fantasy writer Marion Zimmer Bradley, had both molested their own children for years. Moya Grayland, one of their kids, alleged that her parents were not the only ones involved in this milieu guilty of such things. She also named Isaac Bonewitz, a close associate of Pinderwen, and long involved with the Church of All World as someone who had sexually abused her. Another figure who found his way into this milieu was Leonard Lake infamous serial killer. Lake later lived in Greenfield Ranch and continued to stay there after Pinder One purchased it. In fact, he met his future wife there. It was only after he left Greenfield Lake that uh, Leonard Lake and Charles Nag acquired their infamous bunker and uh, the killings began. Slide. Recent research done by Jared Kobeck into the Zodiac murders indicate that Lake may not have been the only serial killer active in this milieu either. Kobeck makes a compelling case that Paul Doerr, another, that's kind of another interesting sink, you see the name Doerr again in all of this, another early figure in this milieu around the Society for Creative Anachronisms and the Church of All World, was either the Zodiac killer or aware of who the killer was. Dorr appears to have later become fascinated by the same survivalist and rape-slash-torture fantasies that drove Leonard Lake to boot. And he was also in contact with Walter Breen as well. But that's not all. He appears to have been active in Circle Sanctuary's network throughout the 1980s. In fact, he was regularly sending them letters trying to set up a dead drop with Circle Sanctuary, and he was trying to do that with one other publication during the 1980s. That publication was Soldier of Fortune magazine, and if you know what Soldier of Fortune magazine was doing to aid Iran-Contra efforts during this time, that gives us a really ominous bent. 
should probably point out Dor was also big in the Minutemen and a lot of far-right militia-type groups. In addition to having these fantasies of bringing a woman out to an isolated cabin and raping her repeatedly until she experienced a religious stake from it. So while many of these figures were much more closely connected to the Church of All World than Circle Sanctuary, there was much overlap between these groups and frequent collaboration. Again, this is especially evident in the Starwood festivals, what Circle had helped organize and the cells routinely participated in. And then there's the figure of Penderwen, who had Leonard Lake living on his property for almost half a decade. He played at the first Pagan Spirit Festival and again was instrumental in the whole Bardic revival. And Dor was in contact with the Circle throughout the 1980s. So, did the darkness of Northern California ever venture to Wisconsin? Slide. At a minimum, there was a connection with this milieu from way back. Came in the form of the Fortean Society, ironically. Frank Lloyd Wright was a member, as I had noted above. Another member active in the Fortean Society by at least 1940 was in Mead Lane who was himself born in Wisconsin and appears to have lived there until he was nearly 18. Lane maintained a vigorous correspondence with numerous members of the society. Wright did not join until 1946 as a fellow. His membership has often baffled many, but by this point, it should be obvious he would have an interest in this kind of stuff if you've been listening to this presentation. And also, there were some other Fortians who had gone to the Prairie School as well, who were involved, such as Claude Fayette's Bragdon, I believe. Slide. So, Lane later went on to found the mysterious Borderland Science Research Association. A figure who had some dealings with this outfit was none other than Paul Dorr, all the way back in 1946. It was during this time frame that Lane and Dorr were in communication concerning cryptids, specifically the abominable snowman. Lane appears to maintain ties with the Fordians despite Borderlands effectively being a rival to the society. In fact, it actually kind of grew out as an offshoot of the Fordian society, more or less. Slide. So another fortune active in these circles was August Derleth, the keeper of Lovecraft's torch. In 1939, he established the Arkham Publishing House in Sauk City to reprint Lovecraft's fiction, along with the works of other weird fiction authors and cosmic horror and so forth. So Derleth was a prolific writer in his own right. Besides his Lovecraftian works, he wrote detective fiction in the mold of Arthur Conan Doyle and more regional-centric works. It's unknown if Derleth was a full-blown member of the Fordian Society, but he had dealings with the group and even helped them edit an anthology of fiction. Weird fiction on the whole is another recurring thread in this saga. Paul Dorr was an uber-Lovecraft fan. He was known to quote from Derleth's work at, at times as well. It's unknown if Alex Jordan read Durlith's work, but he certainly knew the man. Durlith was actually an early guest to House on the Rock, attending those boozy parties from the 1950s prior to the site being formally open to the public, the one where possibly things were being filmed or photographed that might have been a bit scandalous. It's unknown if Lane read Durlith, but having been active in weird fiction circles for years, he surely knew who Durlith was. I've seen Derleth described as Frank Lloyd Wright's friend as well, but I question, you know, how close they might have been. But given the close proximity to one another, it seems almost certain that they rubbed elbows with one another. 
Again, Sauk City, where Durlith set up Oracle Publishing, was right next to Matt, and Durlith certainly included right in his fiction as well. So, very good chance they knew each other, at least socially. Slide. George Hodel had his own curious Fortean links as well. He's reputed to have idolized a novel entitled The Kingdom of Evil by Ben Hitch. The novel revolves around a reclusive artist genius known as Mulray. He creates a dark-haired, mysterious mistress named Rita, who may or may not be real. The novel ends with Mulray beating Rita to death. Hadil's son, Steve, described his father as, quote, completely absorbed in Hedge's belief system. It's also a good chance that he knew Hedge as well, a person, so there's that too. Nor was Hedge the only Fort, or excuse me, not only was Hedge a Fortean, he was a founding member of the society. He played a crucial role in getting Ford's works published and building up his legacy. Hedge also grew up in Wisconsin, Rancine. Rancine is a suburb of Milwaukee and also close to Burlington, where the Burlington Liars Club was based out of... So another figure who was a Ford or was not who, another figure who was never a fortune but long aligned with the movement also grew up in this area. That would be Raymond A. Palmer. Palmer actually spent most of his life in Wisconsin, aside from roughly the decade or so he was in Chicago while editing Amazing Stories slide. Palmer, of course, played an enormous role in shaping modern science fiction, cryptozoology, ufology, and general strangeness. Again, while he was never an actual member of the 14th Society, his fan base was largely drawn to their ranks. In fact, I think he had got a lot of subscribers to Faith Magazine from a 14 mailing list, if I'm not mistaken. And 14 ideals were prevalent throughout his publications, especially during the Shaver years. It's a Shaver mysteries, kids. In fact, he even got Richard Shaver himself to relocate to Wisconsin during the 1950s. The Shaver Mysteries are, of course, a classic piece of 14 Gnosis and would obsess figures like In Mead Lane and Paul Dorr for years to come. Palmer certainly was in contact with several of these figures, most notably Lang and August Derleth. So between Palmer, Derleth, and Wright, there seems to have been no shortages of 14 ties to Wisconsin by the 1950s. Again, these guys were all in the southern part of the state, and Derleth and Wright were right there around the Madison Spring Green area. This is a time when pretty much all the other 14s were mostly based out of like New York City and San Francisco. But it probably goes without saying... These are all very loose and casual connections. There aren't any smoking guns here, nor do I have any up my sleeve. I just have the unusual synchronicities, most notably the Celtic component as it relates to sacrifice. We've already discussed how there's the Taliesin murders and seem to invoke the ritual sacrifice of the old Celtic gods. Slide. The Taliesin murders do not appear to be the only ones in Wisconsin in this vein either. Consider the alleged smiley face killers. They are purportedly a serial killer called active nationwide, but especially in the Midwest and the Northeast. Several ex-cops, most notably Kevin Gannon, have tried to raise awareness about the network for years. To this end, Gannon co-authored a book entitled Case Studies and Forensic Drowning that made the case for the Smiley Network. In this work, Gannon and his co-author singled out one particular area as being ground zero for this frame. La Crosse, Wisconsin. 
A staggering amount of alleged smiley face victims hailed from Las Cross or within an hour to radius the town. Remember, this area would also include Minnesota, which is a major hub of smiley activity. La Crosse is like right next to the border with Minnesota, more or less. So it's also right there near Iowa as well and a lot of other places that smiley victims turned up in. Slide. La Crosse is about a two-hour drive from Spring Green, so thus it's on the outskirts of the La Crosse region but still just in the radius of the smiley killings that have been really prevalent in the area. Beyond this, there's the obvious parallel with Celtic sacrificial deaths. Smiley face victims are known for being drowned in neighboring bodies of water. Their bodies then left to float drown the river. Often the smiley face is left when they reach the final destination. Tatatis would no doubt be pleased with such offerings. While the smiley faces and the jester and clown archetypes they invoke are not prominent in Celtic mythology, those I noted before, the bards might have been an early form of the jester, the sacred clown is a universal archetype of chaos and the reversal of the normal order. In some cosmologies featuring an evil or twin earth, like the one of the Eastern Woodland people, for instance, this region is symbolized by a clown to emphasize its backward nature or something equivalent like a trickster figure, for instance. The potential use of the smiley face to invoke a clown in this context is most fitting in terms of the location as well. The cross and spring green are both within an hour of Baraboo. It was here that the story Ringling Brothers Circus was founded. For years, Baraboo housed dozens of carnies in the big tops that employed them. Like I said before, Wisconsin was the circus capital of the country in the 19th century, with Ringling Brothers and Byron Bailey being based out of this whole region. Clowns are thus a long-standing presence in the state. While they don't have the significance in Celtic traditions as some others, drowning certainly does hold a special place in the ritual sacrifice of the Celts. Yeah. And this is Smiley's principal calling card, that he left so many near spring greens disturbing in light of events that played out in Taliesin during 1914. Clearly, the region has developed a curious link to Celtic traditions brought there over the years. They've continued to manifest in the form of things like Circle Sanctuary. But is this link powerful enough to inspire murder? It doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. When forces like this are pinned to a particular place, they can continue to manifest in unexpected ways. Furthermore, blood is always a popular currency. A lot of wonder occurs in Spring Green, but surely it comes with a price. And the occasional bloodletting may be the currency that is demanded. That's all I got. Wow. That's all you got. That's no f- way to finish that. I need to find the applause. Yeah, that was fantastic, brother. Wow. Mark, do you remember way back when, when we were talking about Barnum and our fascination with P.T. Barnum months ago? Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were. We were. It sounds like there's a motorcycle rally going on behind you, Roman. But, yeah, I do remember that. Um, The strange connection to Bridgeport, right, with P.T. Barnum, he's actually a resident he was born in connecticut yeah yeah and then he had a lot of success in buffalo too if i'm not mistaken Mm, right very interesting yeah so that would make sense i mean geez i'm just a little creeped out by the where we left off here because i mean 
a this picture. I mean, what a way to to yeah. Put a and cherry that's the house the log, by the way. And if you if you're able to like pull that up like closer, you can actually see the Shriner like emblem there in the back too. Ah, yes, I do see that in the little blue space mm-hmm. there, and his hand in his pocket, just like Roman pointed out earlier with those artists, and it's just very creepy, you know, to think that this group of serial killers is out there uh, in the same place where this like carnival carny kind of counterculture exists because we all know that you know if you've ever been to a a moving like what do they call them like those uh, little like levels every year with the big rides and stuff like the carny people i mean we went to the fairs yeah yeah the traveling fairs fairs. i mean there's some that come through our town every year and they just set up in like the mall parking lot or some field somewhere and it's it's interesting to see like you know or wonder where those people go back to when they're done with their tour right and this seems to be one of those hot spots so yeah, it's just, it's interesting. And anytime you have that kind of subculture, you have the criminal element that can exist in the anonymity. But well, can I jump in here for a yeah, second? Too? Because P.T. Barnum himself, when he was later a senator, which is like just ties into the really creepy freak show stuff that they were getting into, he basically banned all information and any contraceptive information. So he made abortion wow. absolutely illegal. And so a lot of people allude to P.T. Barnum impregnating people, carnies that he would bring on to work. So then he would make the freak show himself. He would make these deformed children, you know, and then if Juan was here, you know, he'd bring up some homunculus type. Yeah. Of stuff. Well, there's but, been a lot of rumors of that for years. I mean, you know, again, I didn't really get into it, but the, the Victor Hugo book, The Man Who Lasts, which is really what popularized the whole concept of the Glasgow smile, which I would point out the Black Delilah was found with a very prominent Glasgow smile. You know, he gets into essentially how a lot of the, you know, kind of circus Greeks, for lack of a better term, like the hunchbacks and the dwarves and stuff were actually, you know, artificially created. Uh, what was it? The Cochinos or something. They were said to be this sort of group, which again, originated mainly from the Pyrenees region. They would acquire children at very young ages and they would do things to physically deform them. And then they would sell them to like the royal courts where they could be, you know, like uh, hunchbacks and dwarves and then right to the circuses and things like that. So, wow. So it's paying a homage to a lot older. Yeah. Older practice. What else is fascinating, too, that you brought up, I mean, amongst the many things Stephen. yet again thank you is that so so this sunday on on rfta we're doing us we do these sunday slower and live live streams and i was thinking of what we're going to do and i was like okay let's go into the history of vampirism like let's you know let, let, let's dive into that and you kind of touched a lot on that and talking about like these different esoteric and occult circles and then tying it into these these murders and things and yeah. looking at you know the use of blood that you brought up many times it's that's what we would consider to yeah it's strange roman you cut out there for a second but you went from talking to looking at us now i don't we didn't hear that final part of what you said but yeah it's strange those occult like celtic sort of themed murders in in tribute to those various occult entities you know you have this celtic 
dichotomy of different, you know, gods that do different things or demigods. And, and clearly they understand these concepts. They're making architecture of sprites and all these other things and feng shui. I mean, you, you rolled so much of what we've learned about into one and shown how strange it can get in just one single location, Stephen. So I applaud that. Well, I mean, you know, it gives some closing thoughts too. Like the big thing I really, you know, I'm hoping, because I've done this presentation a couple of times now, and I'm really hoping that like it conveys specifically is, well, A, you know, and this is something I've kind of fought against for years, but I mean, there really does seem to be these traditions that have been handed down you know, from some of these very old, you know, I mean, families and what have you, dating back to Europe, probably even further back than that, as far as we can know. But, you know, just from what we can tell, at least, I mean, Europe fairly recently that have been passed down over and over again. But also, I mean, how they've gone out and they've just basically, you know, created these power centers. And it's really evident, I mean, in the new world, I mean, just looking at all the stuff with spring green, because I think it's a great microcosm for like how this process works. You know, you build these temples there, you possibly have some sacrifices committed there, you create a culture around it. I mean, all this other kind of stuff. And this, you know, again, as I had alluded to, this isn't the only place this has been done. I mean, Asheville, North Carolina is another one where you've got this just huge elaborate structure with the Biltmore Estate that's awash with the same kind of occult architecture and stuff. And, uh, you know, there's it's not even the only one that's in Asheville, which is another place in the middle of nowhere. And to make this even more bizarre, man, like, okay, so... In Wisconsin, House in the Rock and Taliesin are both off of Highway 23, which again is big in Discordianism and also with St. John's Eve and all that other good stuff. Whereas the Biltmore and all this other stuff in Asheville, North Carolina, is right off of U.S. Route 23. So this is like another weird thing. And then U.S. Route 23 actually goes all the way from Jacksonville, Florida to Mackinac and Mackinac is another really weird place that was sacred to the Native Americans, and it goes right through U.S. Route 23 through all the like Adena major uh, major Hopo and Adena sites in Ohio. Mm. So it's like you even see just weird stuff like that with like the roads and stuff, where it's like you know you'll see certain numbers like you know 2333 variations like 223332 show up time and again in a lot of places they have these you know major structures on it either indigenous structures or ones that were built by like more recent elites it's just, you know i mean it's really amazing and it's something i mean i didn't even totally believe until i've been around the country enough to see it with my own eyes you know yeah and you mentioned that's super fascinating another thing before we you know as we're on our final descent here the frank lloyd wright character you brought up was super fascinating and caught my attention right away and so i started doing some Googling, some side Googling while you were going. And I'm here in California, in the Bay Area of California. And I like felt like I had seen the Wright House before, the name, the Wright House. And I started looking it up and he was incredibly prominent. I know you brought up down in LA, but up here in the Bay. Because yeah, Bay Area. Super, I mean, like, I mean, then you brought up the Zodiac Killer and everything too. So there's a lot of those connections that I found are over here. And the Circle Foundation, is just up in Eureka, California, which is not too far from me at all. So I think when I get around to doing my episode on Esoteric America, I'm going to bring up Frank Lloyd Wright to pay homage to this episode in your research. So I do thank you, you need for that, some, Stephen. 
Yeah, I'll go for it. If you um, need some help with San Francisco too, let me know because I've like looked at a lot of stuff in the oh, San Francisco areas. We're definitely gonna cover it. We hope to do another episode. You know, we've only done one episode in California, but we hope to do another episode on a place in well, California and the, soon. I, I won't give away too much about this, but you also I mean, obviously people know about Bohemian Grove in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you know, again, there's a Celtic component to that too, especially with the cremation of cure or whatever it's called. Right. I mean, that's basically described as a Judaic ritual in a lot of the literature, but there was Oh my gosh, there's another Celtic theme, Gentlemen's Society slash Secret Society in the LA area that had a lot of overlap <sighs> with the Bohemian Grove people, and which also turns up in the Black Delilah murders. So Yeah, it's wow. fascinating. I got it's like got, a pyramid consciousness scheme. Mm. Like, Explain that. What do you mean pyramid consciousness scheme? Go ahead. Well, because okay, well, how like how the how the let's see if I can get this right now. It's like some kind of all-encompassing force is like almost dictating these things down to us, like from a higher plane, and they're affecting us on a subconscious level, or at least that's yeah. like what it makes me think of. Some yeah. sort of archetype role being filled, which is interesting too, because you yeah. brought up earlier Saint Francis of Assisi, who is notably that's who a claim like that is who what francis san francisco is named after but also even that's debated but there's that also connection too well, and it's weird when you talk about some top-down hierarchical structure and these archetypes that are just like almost set in play like you're talking about the highways earlier yeah and, like the psychic highway mm-hmm. and oh, oh, there um, you go too. like so with the pyramid consciousness thing and it's like the the how the uh, i really wanted to jump in before and now i kind of like you know i gotta get back in the flow somehow it's okay. but yeah like how the 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 pyramids in egypt are meant to like are there they're taking in this this energy and that's what the the ancients ancients used to to create civilizations and and like this like angular civilization which the freemasons are you know know how to do the secret knowledge and and like using these rituals and then and then using like the psychic highways which is the the telluric energy lines i know i'm like i'm all over the place but you know, like kind of like hijacking the natural flow of energies of earth and earth consciousness and then and and rerouting them. For, well, I mean, for, like, it's also you know, too with like the interstellar component as well, because it's like with the Adena and like the Hopewell structures, for instance, like in Ohio, I mean, they're all stellar oriented and specifically like I was kind of talking about before, you know, they had this cosmology with the spirits of the dead would return to the milky way and i mean almost all of the you know mounds and the other earthworks that they had built in the ohio valley were geared towards this one specific mountain which i actually just climbed up to the last time i was in ohio but basically it was sort of the crossroads for all the dead to like pass over which mountain is that 
Oh, I'm trying to remember now off the top of my head. Sugarloaf, Sugarloaf Mountain, Sugarloaf oh, okay. Mountain, which is actually off of Marietta Road. As I you know, mentioned earlier, Marietta was one of the towns the Society of Cincinnati established. It was the first one they established in Ohio, actually. And uh, the park that it's in is called the Great Seal State Park. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But, so it's, it's like, yeah, it connects like the Earth energies, but it's also like a connection to like the heavens as well. And I think to some extent, that's like what the structures were trying to do. But in the case of the later ones that the colonists have built, I mean, it's definitely a question of what the actual purpose was, whereas the Native Americans, it was supposed to be in harmony, kind of bringing together these different energies in a way that, you know, our consciousnesses could use them to their advantage for exploration and so forth. I mean, now it's just kind of like it's, well, it's it's had some unforeseen effects. If some of the stuff that's happened in these regions are any indication based on what the colonists have built there. Now, what, given- I, what I think a large part of it is, you know, I, I've studied a lot of architecture and antiquity. It's one of my biggest passions and fascinations. And what what I think what, what you're what it's so true because there was a time when we were absolutely harmoniously aligning and we were almost using it for the entire society or in the entire community. And then when these, these buildings were syncretically laid upon other sacred sites, it was almost then it was like, okay, we're going to harness the earth and energy, but we're going to keep it for a small group of people as opposed to letting the entire community and society be a part and harness that. Yeah, like the circle versus the pyramid consciousness, kind of like yes. what Tara's talking about. I mean, the pyramid, about. you know, was very much like in the same mold, you know. I mean, it was another, you know, when you get into stuff like the Egyptian Book of the Dead and their own practice of theurgy, it's kind of like the same, you know, process for the consciousness to ascend or also potentially to bring, you know, other intelligences down, you know, from the stars into the pyramids and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so that's like one final point i guess i can bring up here that's really bizarre and all of this and it's a whole thing with animatronics okay like if you again if you go to house in the rock there are freaking animatronics everywhere i mean just not just the carousel but everywhere i mean it, there's probably more there than there is at disney world okay so when you read a lot of these accounts from ancient egypt and the ancient world about the you know the whole process of theurgy when it's in a descending process the whole you know drawing down the moon and later times this took the form of basically possession where you would draw consciousness down into yourself and let it you know possess you so it could communicate to the group but in the time, you know, in antiquity, in ancient Egypt and so forth, they would draw these energies, these consciousness, whatever you want to call it, down into the statues. There are all these accounts of, like, the statues speaking to people from ancient Egypt. So, again, man, when you look at some of the stuff that people like Walt Disney and Alex Jordan are doing, why they were obsessed with animatronics, or even the, what is it, the Getty the one Getty family member that made the movie The Evil Within that died a couple of years ago under those weird circumstances, but he specifically built these elaborate animatronic devices as effects for his movie, and they nearly bankrupted him when he could have just easily done this stuff with CGI, and I mean, he was obsessed with them. He kept them in his mansion with him and all kinds of stuff, so... I've started to wonder about this and specifically the whole thing with animatronics, if there's maybe a, an additional purpose why these places of power seem to be awash with animatronic devices. And when you, you kind of think of something like Five Nights at Freddy's, well, that uh, raises some really unsettling possibilities. 
And just to be just to be clear to kind of retrace our steps. So Alex Jordan, this is our European sort of character, right? Yeah, yeah, from the sailor Siler family from Switzerland. He's connected to the builder Frank Lloyd Wright as well as whoever built this House on the Rock is was Frank Lloyd Jordan is who built House on the Rock okay. and Frank Lloyd Wright is who built Taliesin. Right, excellent. So I just wanted to clarify that. And it's fascinating to see this influence on them with the order of the jester, right? This say the or or God's jester as as you put it, you know, the this Franciscans. And then this circus element, the smiley face killers, it the movie it and Stephen King and you know that sort well, of Well also element. too the the Phantom Clowns, man. A lot of the the first Phantom Clowns of course started in Boston and a lot of the major sightings were like Chicago, Detroit, forty second parallel again, man. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 chilling and it's you know, it's sort of like, you know woven into the fabric of the United States culture. I mean just a few days ago, everybody was dressing up probably like clowns and who knows what else yeah. walking around through the streets. So it's, it's a part of our, our consciousness in a way. And, and it's interesting to see the, the mound builders <clears throat> culture have a sort of revival through those neo-paganist, you know, cultures, whether or not they're recognizing the, the connection there, it's, it's, a pretty much like a, in my opinion an, an energy transference right yeah like yeah i mean that's there, you know, again like that's a, to me the really fascinating thing is just you know how much of this really is happening on a subconscious level i mean i think mm. you know i mean most people want to try to believe that there's some kind of byzantine conspiracy behind all of this but i mean i think a lot of times i mean it's just people are either unwilling unwittingly caught up in these sort of forces that they're not aware of or you know in the case where there is a deliberate purpose people or groups are deliberately trying to manifest something it happens in a very unexpected way something that's totally unforeseen but i mean yeah it's just i don't know that you can really explain why you know it's just like the whole thing with the clowns you know and this whole like with the 42nd, I mean, it's not just, you know, again, you know, Wisconsin is the circus capital, but then you go over into Europe, into the Pyrenees. I mean, they've got all those festivals and especially the Spanish side of the Pyrenees with like Juriona and stuff. I mean, there's a whole tradition of carnival and whatnot. So, you know, I think, that, again, this is just like an archetype almost that's taken up residency in that particular parallel. I'm with you. I think a lot of this is subconscious and that's what I think a lot of people have a hard time getting a grip with. A lot of this is subconscious. And I like the way you put it. a lot of this energy is being brought down. You know, you got all these miles Hello? and these pieces of architecture helping to bring this energy down. But then you also point out the roads. And that's a way to bring the energy once it's down to spread it out and across. And, up. and you know, in particular, Highway 23 and the 42nd Parallel, those are close and dear to my heart. I grew up on both of those. I grew up on Highway 23 in Flint. I grew up, moved to Detroit off for the 42nd. And my current research is Mackinac Island at the tip of the 23rd. You're going to love the episode. I got you brought some of this. 
You're going to love the episode I'm going to have out on Monday on the farm, by the way. It's all about like Mackinac on the 23rd in Michigan and whatnot. So that's actually kind of ironic because like two of my really good friends like actually grew up in that same area around Mackinac along the 23 and what have you. So somebody's been trying to I appreciate it, man. Somebody was trying to ask something. Tara, go ahead. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the word you use, but it's mystical mystical something or other top on i mean no that wasn't it but it was it was it was related to like basically like telling these stories and oh the mythos or something and how well what i have to go back and listen to it but like mystical mystical yeah i i can't remember the the word you used afterwards but it was basically like talking about how by telling well this is what i got from it like telling these stories it brings it brings it like through the subconscious and as we're telling them they're like coming back to life and and re like re re i don't know yeah like reanimating history or creating history like as we tell them like casting spells that's kind of what oh yeah that was well, I mean, especially when you know I me mean, you have kind of like the whole tradition of the bards and so forth i mean with the whole you know basically preservation of i mean the mythology through these songs or you know through the bardic tradition and i mean especially you know when you get into like latter periods with like the child ballads and so forth it's just kind of fascinating how like elements of spells and stuff were like incorporated into some of these songs like to give you an example like a famous one would be scarborough affair which simon and garfunkel did the version of but in a lot of these ballads you know they sing about like spices and stuff and that one it's like parsley seeds rosemary and twine but so keep going over and over again but these are you know why that was put in is these were like herbal remedies you know for the wise women and stuff like that it was a way to like pass them down and in some cases like willie's lady and so forth there's very elaborate spells that are basically recited openly in these ballads and this is like a case where, you know, mythology is deliberately used or, you know, performance is used to spread it. But I mean, it gets even more elaborate with something like Rosicrucianism, because I mean, there was no Rosicrucian society prior to Andrea writing his manifestos. I mean, they were basically a kind of work of fantasy almost, if you will. But they more or less, I mean, there were Masonic lodges prior to this, but not the esoteric, you know, speculative ones that we all come to know and love. But they emerged after the Rosicrucian manifestos. So, I mean, it was almost a, you know, a kind of process where a fantasy, a story became something in the real world through the Masonic movement, which is always really, in my opinion, drawn its roots more so from Rosicrucianism than anything else. So, you know, you can see the power of that. And then on a more ominous level, I mean, the whole thing with the serial killers, I didn't get into it as much as I would like. But I mean, again, you know, why do we remember Jack the Ripper so much in part? Well, partly it's the ritualistic nature of the killings, but it's also the sparring that he had with the media, all those enticing letters and stuff that he did. H.L. Holmes was blown up by the media. You had that whole White Chapel Club that was in Chicago dedicated to perpetuating the myth of Jack the Ripper at the time. Time. And then getting into the more recent era with the Black Delilah killings, the Black Delilah adventures and all these
these like letters to the newspapers and so forth. And then the Zodiac, I mean, he was freaking writing, you know, reviews of the exorcist to the newspapers. I mean, these guys are deliberately using the media to create a mythos around themselves. Yeah. And that's essentially what we're doing by, by sharing these stories. I mean, especially in the podcasting community, but especially esoteric America. I mean, by sharing the stories about our, our land where we come from we're we're bringing that spirit to life and 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 acting out or those spirits rather are acting through us and by the the choices we t- we how we perceive these stories that we're sharing and determine yeah. our our role and then we go about and share them with each other and with people listening and 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 bring them bring them to life and they're magical and scary and and beautiful like how I don't know like how there's been a lot of synchronicities and it seems to be creating this this narrative or this this new history yeah I mean I was only able to put all this together I mean totally through synchronicity I mean it's what really started me on the whole process of exploring the united states through kind of becoming involved uh, well first becoming fascinated with hellier and then becoming involved with the penny royal guys that was like what kind of initially encouraged me to get out into the road first going to somerset and then later just kind of after i was going to utah and wisconsin and california and just you know everywhere looking at these different places so it's been an amazing journey to put it finally a little scary at times certainly but i mean nonetheless amazing yeah it's um fascinating. I, I unfortunately oh sorry mark i just i just want to tell everybody that i i gotta go yeah but one final thing up. before i go steven it's been a pleasure oh yeah absolutely Jeffrey Dahmer was also born in Wisconsin. yeah and there's yeah there's celtic elements with him and the skull cult too but yeah i didn't wow. want to get to that as well i just had to mention it man <laughs> Mm-hmm. He's made a big comeback too in popular culture recently as well with his own particular mythos. That's for sure. Wow, wow, yeah, this is this is incredible. I mean, Stephen, we'd love to have you back on as we mentioned before because you just can't fit all of this into one episode. And and you know, I'm sure this connects to other places around the world. Roman, thank you for being here, buddy. Chad, any final thoughts before we? wrap up here with steven i just want to thank steven man you can really tell the effort you put into your research and your boots on the ground and thank you for sharing with us here tonight man it was awesome yeah thank you guys for having me and i mean yeah it's definitely a pleasure to do this and i would love to come back and do it again because you know obviously i have a real passion for this kind of thing i can tell you guys do too so yeah it's it's certainly fascinating and as Tara put, a little scary at times for sure to to realize that, mm-hmm. you know, all this occult stuff, you know, people can use it for good and they could use it for evil, right? And that's what we hope to do with this show is to expose it in the light and, and allow it to be used for good. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like martial arts, like bad people can learn martial arts too, you know, and that's kind of how this stuff is. It's just a l- little more foggy than martial arts, I'll say. So... Thank you so much, Stephen. And for everybody listening, please tune in and, of course, subscribe. But if you're out there and you want to tell us about where you live, get in touch. The email is in the description. We'd love to have you on the show. You can share your research about wherever you are in this esoteric America. Until next time, 
Enjoy the journey.